1: Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 208, and we are going to discuss some great listener questions we got recently. And so without any further ado, I will go ahead and read our first question. So I have, hi, Andrew and Dave. I've been listening to your podcast each week since I began investing in January. I've learned so much from your podcast. I have a few questions about ETFs that I'm hoping you could answer here or on an upcoming episode. Does the expense ratio of an ETF ever change, or is it locked in for each share I buy? Similarly, does the dividend yield of an ETF ever change? Thank you, Joseph. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Joseph's question?
0: So let's start in case some of these beginners just tuning in. An ETF is an exchange-traded fund. Easy for me to say. Easy. And it's basically a group of stocks bought into a single fund, and you can buy one share of it, and gives you ownership of those stocks. The most common ones you'll see is like a market index ETF lets you buy like basically the, the entire stock market in the basket. So when you buy an ETF, you have to pay an expense fee. So if you are, let's say you bought an ETF that bought the whole stock market, so that fund would give you whatever all those stocks value are, but they take some of it for themselves because it costs money for them to deal with paperwork, to deal with the regulation. All of the administrative costs that go with collecting a bunch of people's money and using that to buy stocks in a group in a vehicle called an ETF, that all costs money. So there's an expense ratio for that. Now, to answer Joseph's question, does that change or is it locked in? Uh, You have a long-term trend of exchange sorry expense ratios that have trended lower over the years and so an example would be like a target date funds those have been able to lower their fees over the years because they've been able to use economies of scale as they've gotten bigger they can spread out more spread out costs over more people and that lowers costs for them lowers the exchange the expense ratios for everybody else that would be the answer for that the dividend yield also will change and that can depend on either the dividends that are held the dividends that are held in the ETF those can change as the companies raise or reduce their dividends. Also the price of the ETF can change, which changes the yield even if the dividend stays the same. so those those would be the answers to those two questions. All right, so a quick question then. So uh, can you explain dividend yield quickly
1: so somebody understands what that means?
0: Yeah. So if I'm buying, we could use a stock as an example. Um, A stock from a company might pay a dividend. Let's say they pay $2. So if their stock's trading at $100, the yield is 2% because we're paying $100. We're getting $2 back, 2% of that every year in a dividend. That's 2%. Now, if the the price crashes, it goes down to $50 a share. They're still paying the same $2 in dividends. Your yield has doubled. So now you get like a 4% dividend yield instead of two. And so that's how the calculation works. And it basically tells you how much you're going to get from dividends every year. And that does tend to be more locked in because companies are very reluctant to stop paying the dividend or to reduce the dividend. Usually they try to maintain that dividend or they try to increase it. So if I'm buying a stock with a 3% yield, I get pretty happy myself because I figure I'm getting 3% of my investment back every year, plus however much it increases as time goes on. And so that's why, if you're looking at the long term, I get excited about dividend yields. Yeah, I can
1: sense the enthusiasm in your voice as well as the big smile on your face when you're talking about dividends. So (laughs) that's always kind of a dead giveaway. Uh, The... Interesting thing about ETFs, and one of the things that I think are intriguing about them is there's so many different flavors out there now, and you can find just about any kind of thing. Is something that I was thinking about
0: while you were talking about dividends: is there a dividend aristocrat ETF? I bet there is. I, I'd be shocked if there wasn't. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be I, really I know they have like dividend increaser
1: ETFs. Right. I'd be curious to know what the the yield is on that baby. It's probably pretty nice.
0: Explain that real quick. What that is. The dividend yield? The aristocrat.
1: Oh, aristocrats. Sorry. Uh, dividend aristocrats are a special group of companies that pay a growing dividend over a minimum of 25 years. And they also have to be of a certain size. They also have to be in the S and P 500. So it's a select group of companies. I believe it's around 60 companies are a part of that group now. Is that correct? I don't follow that. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know what the numbers are. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's around 60 companies. And yeah, it's, it, If you're a dividend person, that is something that definitely needs to be right up your alley to investigate because those are companies that over a course of 25 years, you got to think of all the ups and downs, the world as well as the economy, as well as just about any sort of life circumstances I've come across. We've had wars, we've had a pandemic, you've had all kinds of market corrections as well as the great financial crisis, presidents come and go. lots of ups and downs in the world. And those companies still keep chugging along and paying growing dividends. There's a special group inside of that group that are called Dividend Kings, which have paid dividends, growing dividend. That's a key, a growing dividend for over 50 years. And that is a much smaller group. I believe that's around 20 or so. And some of those companies have literally been paying dividends for many decades. Coca-Cola, Johnson & Johnson, I think, American Water is the oldest one, and I think they're around a hundred years. They've been paying a growing dividend or something crazy like that. It's uh, there; those are select groups. Uh, it, needless to say, when you invest in a company like that, you're pretty sure you're going to get the dividend. That it, it's a big thing. But like Andrew was saying, as a side note, the companies are loath to give up the dividend such that they'll go to sometimes pretty extreme measures to continue paying the dividend. And And a perfect case of point of that is Exxon recently. They have been on the big time struggle bus and they were they were taking on debt, like borrowing lots and lots of money to continue paying a dividend because they knew that if they cut that dividend, that was really one of the only things that was keeping them afloat as far as people wanting to invest in the company. And they understood that if they ever cut that dividend, they would be in trouble because that's they pay a 4 or 5% yield on that dividend. So it's a big dividend. But anyway, when oil prices went down, the company got on a on the struggle bus big time and so there was lots of concern about that so that's just a that's just a small example of how extreme companies will go to continue paying that dividend
0: kind of crazy that for the longest time that was considered one of the best companies and the 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 logic was always people are always going to have to drive well apparently not apparently not yeah i know during
1: during the all the lockdowns of last year there were times where i probably went 2 months without buying gas because I never, I didn't drive my car. It didn't go anywhere. I was on lockdown because my fiance, I'm diabetic. So my, my fiance was like, you will not leave the house. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I didn't leave the house. So I didn't have to drive. So it's great. Cut down on my gas price, gas expense. But hey, you know. There's lots of other horrible things about that we won't even discuss. So
0: anyway, um, as long as you can connect with us on the podcast. We're all yeah, there.
1: right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the next question. So we have uh, looking for easy index portfolio breakdown. What percentage if large versus medium call versus small cap versus an uh, international value versus growth? Trying to be aggressive with very little work. Set and almost forget type. I'm 34 long-term retirement goal. So that's a great retirement goal. And I love the set it forget it idea. That's great. Andrew, do you
0: have any recommendations for this person? I guess I'm more of a hands-on type. So maybe I wouldn't have the best recommendation. You might have one better than me, but it does kind of show what you can do with the ETFs we were talking about earlier, because I'm sure... For sure, you can find an ETF for each of these themes. And so just by buying those ETFs, you can quite easily set your percentages, whatever those, whatever you hope those to be. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'll throw this out there. So when
1: I was working at Wells, financial advisor that I work with, one of the first things he talked to me about was setting up my 401k. And so he walked me through actually this kind of idea. And because I was wanting to be a little more aggressive, we set it a little differently than he would normally do. So the way we set it up was we did 40% large cap ETFs. We did 20% medium cap ETFs. And then we did 10% US small cap ETFs. And then we did uh, another 10% in international ETFs. And then the balance was left over, which is I think around 20% we did in in a mixture of bond ETFs. And so that's the way we set it. And we just, we used the choices we had available on in Wells Fargo's menu for our 401k. And so it didn't really break down between value and growth. They may now, but at the time they didn't, but there are a plethora of different ideas that you could go. But his, his idea was that if you want to go more aggressive, then instead of using the traditional 60-40 split that a lot of portfolios have advocated prior to the last few years. That was a traditional mix, if you will. His recommendation, if I wanted to be more aggressive, was to definitely do more stocks than bonds and to do a bigger portion of the portfolio in a little more riskier type things like medium to small cap and international because they tend to have a lot more volatility to them, but they also have greater capacity for growth in the long term. So that was his recommendation. So that would be something that I think would probably be a good starting point for somebody if somebody wants to follow that kind of recipe, if you will. As far as this specific ETFs, that's not really my bag. So I I wouldn't feel comfortable suggesting, hey, buy this one and buy this one and buy this one. That's not really my thing. But If you go on Google, I know you're going to find a million different recommendations of different kinds of ETFs that would fit the bill to help you get down that path for sure. Do you buy
0: ETFs now?
1: I do not. That is not something that I do. I have them in my 401k and in the past I had them before I rolled it over, but no, I do
0: not individually buy ETFs. How about you? No, I don't either, and so that's probably why it's a good idea we don't give specific tickers. But like you said, Google is your friend. I am curious how maybe looking back now with everything that maybe why he set the percentages the way he did, and is there something that we can glean off of that? Is it just more like just to make, mirror the S and P or something?
1: I think it was. I think it was some of it. He was trying to mirror the S and P, but I think some of it too was he was trying to take around. He was trying to take around 30 to 40% of it and move it more towards companies that would have more potential for more growth. The the 40%, the idea behind the 40% for the large cap was that was going to be more of the, uh, stable portion of the portfolio and the one that was going to see less volatility, but it was also going to be, you know, would expect to get good returns, but it would also pay dividends. And so even if the large caps struggled a little bit, you're still going to get those consistent dividends that would help, con- you know, continue to grow that portion of the portfolio. But the medium to small cap and the international was where you could really see some some big growth because those were those were the potentials for the 10 baggers or better were in those kinds of of companies be, just because of the nature of mathematics and them being much smaller companies them doubling or even 10 bagging is a greater possibility than a company like Amazon that's 2.4 trillion. It's this, (laughs) that's the possibility of that doubling is so anyway, that was his idea. And his recommendation was that he felt like that would give me enough growth to, Make me feel like I was being aggressive, but still give me a margin of safety with the combination of the large cap and some of the bond exposure that it wouldn't be super volatile and it wouldn't be putting pushing all your chips in on companies from Russia kind of thing or something like that. So it still would give you maybe some exposure to some of that kind of thing if that's really what you wanted to be more aggressive, but it would also still make sure that you just, you know, you weren't going (laughs) to ride the roller coaster of stuff. And looking at my ETF was not something I looked at on a regular basis. I basically just checked it every quarter and I would rebalance it every six months or so. I would just, I would set it to automatically adjust back to the proportions that I had set so that it would just, it would do that for me automatically. It was cool. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't until monarch money, monarch money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending budgets and more It's my go to app more so than my bank because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do is my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/beginners. That's M O N A R C H M O N E Y.com/beginners for your extended 30-day free trial.
0: Yeah, and I would think that if you're planning to rebalance, or if you're just planning to set it and forget it, I almost think if it's truly set it and forget it, it's so much easier to just do like a market index fund, like an S and P, and then maybe a little bit international, and just call it a day. Yeah. If you're doing the the rebalancing stuff, then it makes sense to have the the different categories so you can rotate from time to time, but. Mm. Man, if it's really simple, and forget it, why make it more complicated than it needs to be? That's right.
1: Not- exactly. And if you do something like that and you, you just, you do the two that Andrew was suggesting and you, you buy a market ETF and maybe some international to get some possible exposure to that and get a little aggressive growth kind of idea. You're still, even over the last few years, you're looking at 15 18% return just on those ideas right there. So that's nothing to sneeze at. What's easier than that? You just you can you know commit to it and put money in on a regular basis and uh, it works slick so yeah if that's really the way you want to go and and it'll work out for you too hey, I'm not sneezing no me either me either and the the other nice thing is a lot of this is accessible now through just about any sort of brokerage that you want to use and the the other idea is that even though Andrew and I are not ETF gurus there are lots of educational resources and as well as guidance that you can get from your brokerages that will help you maybe track down or narrow down some of the ideas if you're looking to do something like this. If you want to find the best or maybe two or three of the best market-matching ETFs, go to your favorite brokerage, i.e. Fidelity, Schwab, whoever it is, and do a little research on their platform and you'll be able to find some great ideas through them. And they'll have lots of great resources to help you learn about the dividend yields they offer, what kinds of expense ratios they have, what the minimums are to invest in some of the ETFs, how long the ETF has been around, and there's lots of great stuff that'll help you learn as much as you can about them.
0: Yeah. No doubt. So I'll read the last question here, but it is long. Okay, but I got time. Okay, it says Andrew. First, I would just want to thank you and Dave's for your help and dedication to making a podcast for new investors. I know we all are really appreciative of the content you provide us. In all caps here for free. <laughs> Love that. Even through COVID, we are right now. I feel at a high point in the market just based off of how well the housing industry is doing. And I bought some SPY in February and I'm up like 19% or a ridiculous amount. So when the market is at a high point, so let's answer this question first, Dave. He says, so when the market is at a high point or even at the peak, do you usually still see many of these companies that are valued below their intrinsic value or do they tend to rise with the rest of the market?
1: I would say that the rising tide tends to raise all boats. So I think you see less of them when everything else is up. Now, you'll still see a good portion of them, but usually those are really out of favor companies or really out of favor sectors. But yeah, the rising tide generally tends to raise all boats.
0: I, I Yeah, I think I would mostly agree with that. But it you, you, depends on, I guess you have to be careful because I don't think every bull market's necessarily the same. Mm. And so even if you look at 2020 and 2021, there were so many different themes between the safe work from home stocks which turned into the reopening play stocks which turned into whatever the heck 2021 has been and Yeah, I think you can always find value but I, I think maybe the value that you hope for isn't always the one that you'll get so the deals that you could have got in 2019 are not going to be the same deals that you're going to get today so you need a change a little bit how you view them when the market is so much higher. At the same, you have to be careful because a lot of times really great companies will be more expensive and sometimes you do have to pay up for it. That said, you don't have to go start buying companies at 200 price earnings ratios. So while, yeah, it might be harder to find that value that you hope for, you can still find a way to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, you definitely
1: can. You need to look no further than Facebook six months ago was considered had dropped into the air quote value stock arena. And I think it was trading at a PE of around 25, 26 at the time. And you, know, you look at it now and it's gone up, I don't know, 30 or 40% since that time. So, you know, it, it, it really depends on what your definition of value is, but I, I agree with what Andrew
0: is. At that time, or even the time now, with the average P.E. for the S&P at like 35, what's a 25? I think a 25 P.E. looks pretty bad in 2015, but right. a 25 P.E. when the average market P.E. is at 35, mm-hmm. something to consider. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Very good and Maybe. Point. maybe Before we move on, price to earnings for somebody who doesn't know what we're talking about when we say PE. Okay. All right. So
1: price to earnings is a ratio that you could use to give you an idea of a, a relative value of a company. And in essence, it's the price per share over the earnings per share. Now, the earnings per share of a company is basically the bottom line or the net income divided by the shares outstanding, which gives you an earnings per share. And typically, the way you look at it is you will divide that by the price per share that it's trading in the market. And generally, the lower the number the cheaper the company is regarded. And the way to look at it is if you have a PE of 10, for example, then you're paying $10 for one dollar of earnings of a company. And so that's the way you look at it. So when we're referring to Facebook earlier, that means we are paying, we would have been paying $25 for one dollar of earnings from Facebook. And if you look at a company like I I can't think of a company off off the top of my head, but I was looking at a company a few days ago and their PE was around 175. So that means that we would be paying $175 for $1 of earnings for that. If you compare that to Facebook, you have to, then you have to get into this comparison of whether you think company A is worth more than company B and it, it, it becomes a, a whole other conversation but it's it's an easy quick easy way to to determine whether you think a company might be expensive or not
0: yeah and i think you might have posted this on our twitter but you talked about how you can flip the p and it gives you the earnings yield mm-hmm. so just to, st- to stay a nerd for five more seconds if you were to say that facebook going back to paying 25 dollars for a dollar of earnings if facebook paid all of the earnings in the dividend mm-hmm. You could flip that PE of twenty five one divided by twenty five. That's four percent. There you get your four percent dividend yield, right. which is the same as the earnings yield. So you can think of it that way too, where you can think of PE. You can also flip the PE. And I don't know when I when I made that discovery. I know when you tweeted about it, mm-hmm. there was some excitement about wow, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I remember learning that as a beginner. I was like, wow, that's what that stuff means because everybody throws PE around. Mm-hmm. Nobody really takes the time to describe it. So I th- I thought that would be helpful. So anyway, uh. Answering the second part of the question here, this is from Ben. He says, I was also looking at a company, I believe it was Xerox, who had decent numbers on Finviz. So I wanted to look into their 10K report and found something very odd. I looked at the most recent 10K, which I believe is 2020, looked at the previous five years and noticed that earnings and revenue they posted three years ago on their 2017 10K did not match what they had in their most recent 10K. I found this incredibly peculiar and I was wondering if you knew how or why this could be. I googled the company and found that in the early 2000s they were caught up in a scandal where they had overstated their earnings, sorry, overstated their revenues for the past 5 years. That was a huge red flag for me and I'm decided that there was too much risk for me, but I'm wondering if that could be that they were caught up in some scandal recently or if there was a reasonable explanation for that
1: without diving into the particulars. Uh, I'll admit I have not read through Xerox's 10 Ks, but I think this brings up an interesting question. And without looking at it, I'm going to go out on a whim and guess that they get audited. So the 10 Ks get it audited and it, they also will go back and audit pr- prior 10 Ks even after. They've already been audited and posted. So there is a chance that something happened that the auditor caught, and it it could have been an honest mistake. It also could have been that they overstated their revenues like they did prior uh, in when they got caught. It could be. It's probably one of those two things. They either did a boo-boo, which is a mistake, or they intentionally misled people and stated them as higher they were. There's also been accounting changes on how some revenues are accounted for now. And I honestly have a look back to notice if there was differences from the a prior year to a current year. But some of how revenue is is cataloged now is has changed a little bit with companies going forward. But that doesn't mean that they won't go back and and adjust their financials to represent those accounting changes. And that could be what Xerox did as well. So I don't want to throw them under the bus without doing my due diligence. But those are a couple things that you could keep an eye on. But I would agree with you if they have a history of doing this and especially if management wasn't changed since that period, that would be something to be like, I really got to be leery of anything like that. So what are your thoughts, Andrew?
0: I would agree with that. I would look for red flags over if it's a habitual thing. And then I would also look at it on a sliding scale of, are we talking about like $10 million or $10 billion? What's the scope of the change that was restated? And that, that tells me a lot more versus, like it's not super uncommon to see it restated like this, where it could be a potential red flag, I think is the size of it. And like you said, the reputation of management, and how often this happens. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. A- an easy way to, to try to determine that would be to look at the current 10 K and do a, a control F search for revenue or adjustments or accounting changes or something along those lines and that'll help you that would help you narrow down a lot quicker specifics of maybe why some of these things happen because If they did make changes via accounting or if they were caught with their hand in a cookie jar and they had to make the changes, there's gonna be something in there that's gonna the SEC is gonna tell you or the auditor are gonna tell you that, hey, we had to make these changes for this reason or whatever it may be. I haven't heard anything through the news about anything along those lines. I don't necessarily follow Xerox, you know, very closely. So it's not like it, it could have happened and it, you know, slipped under my radar. That's of course. Certainly possible, but those are some things that would help you maybe narrow down your search. It maybe not for Xerox, but in the future, if you're trying to go through a company's 10k, this is a trick Andrew taught me years ago. The control F is like your greatest friend because it helps you very quickly narrow down different things. And the other. Th- cool thing about it is you can use this on just about anything. Uh, I use it on earnings calls. I use it on financial reports. I use it on other um, articles I may read about a particular company. So if I'm looking for specific items about a particular company and I have four or five tabs pulled up, I will cycle through all the tabs using control F to look for that particular piece of information to see what kinds of stuff I can learn through a group of things. And it helps the search a lot. I'm not saying you shouldn't read through the the financials. You definitely should. But if you're if you've already read through them and now you're trying to go back and do a little more finite narrowing down of a particular information, that's a cool little trick.
0: Maybe next week I can do some Excel shortcuts. Ooh, <laughs> easy, easy kill. I don't want to get
1: people too overheated. All right, all right. <laughs> keep it PG for now. Yeah, PG for now. So that would be interesting to say the least. So. Do you have any other thoughts on Xerox or any
0: that pretty much covers it up. If you really want to go deep into the weeds, we have plenty of blog posts on the accounting and on auditing and revenue recognition. Even you could search it all on our website, but these are just great questions. And um, I want to thank Joseph and Ben for writing in and that other dude on Facebook who wrote in, these are all great and it's great to see people picking up the material and like moving forward with it. It's, 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 Very exciting, and we're happy to answer these questions for people.
1: Yeah, we absolutely are. We love helping you guys. We love seeing all these great questions come in. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. But the quality and the depth and the intelligence that people are, are asking us these questions is just, you know, astounding to me. I think back on when I started, I wouldn't have asked these intelligent of a questions. I would have been like, I just, I didn't know the, the learning you guys have done is impressive. So I, I applaud you for all the hard work and effort you guys are putting into this and thinking through some of these ideas. They're really great ideas and some of them really challenge us and stretch us to come up with what our thoughts are on helping you answer these questions. All right. And with that, I will go ahead and wrap it up. So that will be it for us tonight. So we thank you guys for, again, taking the time to write us these great questions, either through the website, through Facebook, through Twitter, however you can reach out to us. We're here to help any way that we can. So please continue to send us these great questions. Go out there and invest with a margin of safety emphasis on the safety have a great week we'll talk to y'all next week
0: we hope you enjoyed this content seven steps to understanding the stock market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples get access today at stockmarketpdf.com until next time have a prosperous day